The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back on April 21st. Now on to today. Every year, there are some students who aren't admitted into any of their top college choices, and so they have to decide what to do. Um, To answer those questions, we have Karen Spencer, college coach educator and former admissions officer at Georgetown University in in Washington, D.C., and at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania to discuss next steps for students in this position. Then for our final uh, segment, our financing college segment, we'll be answering listeners' questions with Beth Feinberg-Keenan, finance expert with College Coach and former financial aid officer at Northeastern University in Boston. But first, we'll be talking with Zainab Binderwala, a first-year student at the University of Michigan, about why she chose Michigan and her observations on the school. Welcome, Zainab. Hi, Sally. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. so, And thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's, let's just get right into it. Why don't, um, um, why don't you tell me, did you always want to apply to the University of Michigan? And, you know, where else did you apply? So U of M was always on my list of top schools. It's very close to home. A lot of people from my city go there. And it's a very good school, so it was always on my radar. Um, I also applied to the University of Detroit Mercy, Wayne State University, U of M Dearborn, uh, Georgetown, George Washington, and, of course, Ann Arbor. Okay, so that's interesting. So most of these schools were obviously Michigan schools, um, Mm -hmm. but you did apply to a couple schools in Washington, D.C. So what, what made you decide to apply out there? Uh, actually, College Coach helped me decide that. I knew that I was interested in law, and I'm hoping to go to law school after this. And I love the D.C. area. It's just an area that I think is so interesting. I love the climate there. And so College Coach told me about Georgetown and George Washington, which were two schools that I hadn't considered. So it's nice to have some more options. Right, just to kind of consider going out of state and look around a little bit mm-hmm. more. Okay. Yeah. All right, great. Okay, and so obviously, you know, University of Michigan is a great school. It's one of the truly great uh, public universities in the country. Um, But in in kind of a more um, detailed level, what attracted you to the University of Michigan? What particular qualities, you know, beyond just that it's such a good school, were attractive to you? So that was obviously a very big consideration for me, but also it was like a good distance from home. Um, I have a lot of family and friends who've been to U of M and they've all had great experiences. 
I've heard very good things. It's got a very good reputation, which is important to get into law school. But probably the thing that really motivated me to come here was uh, the first time I did a campus tour, I felt very much at home here. And that's what you want in an undergrad experience. Mm -hmm. So that was probably what really pushed me. Okay, great. And you're 100% right that I think that sort of feeling that you get um, on a tour can be really valuable. But can you can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about what made you feel so at home? Yeah, so the campus tour guides were very, very nice. They were so willing to answer my questions, even if they'd already been asked those questions a million times before throughout the summer. But it's mostly just the environment here. The people that we passed were very welcoming. Everyone we talked to, like, really wanted students to feel at home. And I think that like it happened, you know, we all felt very, very comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, let's talk about some of the other things that you were looking for in a college. Were you, was your ideal going to be a large, um, a larger university or had you initially maybe wanted a smaller school? You know, how did you feel about larger classes versus smaller classes? That kind of thing. Yeah. So I actually did want to come to a medium to large size school. I think, In high school, I was really intrigued by the idea of sitting in a lecture full of 200 other students all learning the same thing. So I really liked the idea of going to a really big school with a lot of different students. But I've also got the opportunity to be in really small seminars and classes here. So I also really appreciate the small class sizes. Okay, so tell me how, uh, that's a great thing, I think, for students to know. I think a lot of students are concerned that if they go to a large university, the only thing, they're only going to have lecture classes. So how are you getting access to those small um, classes? Uh, It really just depends on what you take. So seminars here are capped at 18 students. So no matter what, there won't be more than 18 people in a seminar. And then every lecture is paired with a discussion. So I could be in a lecture full of two, 300 students, but then I'll have a discussion section with, which only has 30 students in it. So mm-hmm. there's okay, always going to be a smaller class size to foster learning. I also know that the University of Michigan has a strong honors program, and they have smaller class sizes as well. Are you, are you in the honors program too? I am, yes. I'm an honors philosophy major. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, and okay. And so that actually does lead me to my next question too, which is, did you have a major in mind when you were applying to college or were you undecided? So I was technically undecided. I knew that I wanted to be on the pre-law track, but there's no pre-law major specifically here. So I thought about, um, coming in with an undecided major, but I wanted to minor in philosophy. And then my first philosophy class actually convinced me to make it a major. And now I'm thinking of minoring in sociology. Okay, or great. Or making it a dog major. Okay. And so what, I'm very, I'm very curious now. I know that not every student who goes to University of Michigan is going to take philosophy, but um, I really want to know what the class was that you took that made you decide to major in it and what you found compelling about it. Yeah, so it was law and philosophy. So it mixed in um, the philosophical part of it. And also I'm pre-law so it like really worked out I was learning about court cases the class was taught like a law class would be taught so that was really interesting and I think I was just really compelled by the idea of like ethics and just thinking about like when is it okay for human beings to take these actions versus others and so that part of philosophy really really intrigued me okay great and so how does that connect to sociology I think that's really interesting Tell me why both of those are interesting to you and how you see them connecting to each other, if you do see them connecting. 
Yeah, I do. Um, my law and philosophy class actually also counts for sociology. So, so it's just mostly how groups of people interact and how, like, group think works. So with philosophy, it's kind of thing, um, it kind of goes off the idea of, like, why do groups of people do things that they do? You know, like, we talk about, like, Nazi Germany and just, like, like the Holocaust and big events in history and, like, why did they happen and why did these entire populations allow this to happen? How can a social philosophy mix really well? Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating. It, it's you're making me want to be a college student again because that's that's exactly the kind of classes that I would have wanted to take. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit though, and maybe you could tell me about um, your extracurricular activities, some of the things that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. So probably the biggest extracurricular that I'm a part of is my living learning community. Um, My community is called the Michigan Community Scholars Program, and it's based off of community service and social justice. So I actually live with the other people who are in my community, so we occupy an entire floor of a residence hall. And it's really nice to live with people who also have the same values as you, who care about the same things as you do, and it's like a really strong community. And it's also a very good support system, because freshman year is hard, and it made the transition a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So that's my biggest outside of school commitment. And then a couple other things that I'm involved with, um, the South Asian Awareness Network. So we are a group of people who hold an annual conference on social justice. And we work on um, kind of digging into what the South Asian identity is, as well as how we can be allies to other people of color and other groups on campus. And then the last thing that I'm very involved with is the Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month um, Committee. So the closing ceremony was actually yesterday, but we held events throughout the month that kind of um, showcase, like, what it means to be Asian Pacific Islander American. And so those take up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems, I mean, it all seems to be connected to issues of, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I can see how those would connect to your interests, your academic interests as well, in terms mm-hmm. of sort of, you know, sociology and sort of who we are in our culture or in our place where we're living. Um, that was, yeah, that was an inelegant way of putting it, but it makes, it makes sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to, I wanted to go back to something though. Um, I think like the living learning community that you're a part of, um, are there a number of those at Michigan? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure exactly how many, but there are different ones. I know there's one based off of creative writing. There's a health one. There's an engineering one, I think. There's, like, various ones, and you can apply to them after you apply to the school. And then you get accepted to Michigan, and then you get accepted into a living learning community, and then that's where you would stay for the year. And I'm actually coming back to my living learning community as a student leader next year. Okay, that's great. And so I assume that there are students from, is it mostly uh, fresh, you know, freshmen and sophomores, or do you have students of all sort of ages in the group? We have students of all ages. It is mostly freshmen because my program is built specifically for freshmen. Um, there's a lot a lot of the student leaders, well, actually all the student leaders are sophomores, and then our RAs are juniors and seniors. So everyone on my floor is a part of this living learning community. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of and curious. there's to, also an do, alumni. I'm sorry, sorry what did you say? Um, there's also an alumni network that we can join. So I've been connected with alumni of this program who are also still at Michigan, and it's just like another resource for me. 
Oh, that's wonderful. So there's a couple of things that strikes me about that strike me about this. One is that this seems like a wonderful way again to take a kind of a large school, a wonderful large school, but a large school that can be intimidating and really, like you said, find a, a smaller community very, very quickly, a community mm-hmm. of people with shared values. So so I think that's really wonderful. And then on top of that, so the alumni network, I could see how that even might be helpful, not only in terms of community, but also in terms of, um, you know, job placement and all those things that we worry about down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually interning at a company with an alumni of MCSP and of U of M this summer. So it's a very good resource, this living learning community. Okay, great. Wonderful. And um, so let's, one of the things also that you mentioned is that you said that, you know, being a first-year student can be hard. Being, you know, transitioning mm-hmm. to college can be hard. What were some of the, what are some of the challenges that you faced? Just a couple of them so that, you know, that you think might be challenges that other students have faced as well. Yeah, so for me, the two biggest ones were probably time management and also the workload. So I'm used to, you know, high school is also hard. I'm used to doing a lot of work, but college is a whole nother level. (laughs) It was very unexpected how much work was expected of me. And I think at the beginning, I really struggled with it because the first weeks of school are supposed to be very fun. You know, you don't really do much and then you get right into it. So, and that kind of goes with the time management. I wasn't sure how, like, there's no one here telling me, like, you have to be in class now and you have to do your homework at this point. It's just kind of up to me. So the time management part was a really big struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really common. I mean, it's it's a pretty common story that you hear about students who have been very strong students in their first term in college. They really don't do as well as, as they're used to doing um, yeah. because of that. Yeah. Okay. Any other any other particular challenges? Um, not anything big that I can think of. My living learning community really, really helped with the transition through. Um, a lot of people that I've talked to who weren't in living learning communities had a couple more difficulties just in like finding a group of people that they like hanging out with and just like more of the social aspect. But the living learning community really helps with that because my friends live right next door to me. You know. Right, right. Yeah. And like you said, you've got this sort of common, you know, these common bonds, these common interests that really draw all of you together. So Yeah, so we all gel very well. Okay. All right. And most all right. of my very close friends are in my living learning community. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, the living learning communities, um, I didn't actually know about those before talking to you. So this is really helpful to know about. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. Is there anything about the University of Michigan that has surprised you, both good and bad? Like, let's maybe start out with something that you were a little disappointed with, because no place is perfect, Um, and then we'll move on to something that's maybe even better than you thought, or just different in a good way. Yeah, so something that I would say is a little bit of a negative is U of M isn't as diverse as they advertise themselves to be. I always thought of college as a place where you meet new people and there's people from all over the world, all over the country with very different perspectives. And, you know, you just like, like a racially diverse, ethnically diverse, religiously, like all of those things. But U of M is very homogeneous. Um, my living learning community is different because they um, put an emphasis on making sure it's a diverse community. So that's been really nice. But I think it's just not as diverse as I expected the school to be. So it's a little bit of a drawback. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. And I think that that points to, um, you know, the need to do as much research as possible. 
um, before mm-hmm. students yeah. start at colleges. Although it's hard, it's hard to think of any everything and research everything. Um, oh, yeah. What about mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, what about something? Is there anything that surprised you in in a great way? You know that it was even better than you thought it would be, or just something that was different than you thought it would be. Um, I would say the professors here, because when you think of college professors, I think the stereotypical professor like doesn't care about the students, is only there to like just kind of talk at the beginning and then they leave. But here, all of my professors have been very, very welcoming. They've encouraged us to come to office hours. They've had like genuine conversations with us. I've had multiple professors follow up with me a couple days later with like an article or just some sort of event that related to what we talked about like a week ago. So I think I was not expecting that at all. The professors here genuinely care about the students, which I think is amazing. Okay, wonderful. Actually, um, let's see, we have about three minutes left, but I'm just curious, is there, what's been your favorite class so far? I mean, you mentioned that philosophy class, but so would that be it or do you have another class that's a favorite? Yeah, I would probably say the philosophy class. Mm-hmm. Because it helped uh, me pick my major, you know, like it was just one class that I decided that that was what I wanted to continue learning. And I'm in a philosophy class right now as well. And I really, really like it. Okay. But another What's class you- that I really like. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Another class that I really liked was the seminar that I took first semester. It was on social justice, identity and community building. And so that was, again, a small class. And I got to know the professor really well. And it was just a very nice environment. And it was all first years. So that was also very cool to meet other people who were going through the same thing as I was. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And so are these smaller classes, do they tend to be more discussion-based, or is it still largely a lecture? They're, they were definitely more discussion-based. We could put in our input, we could ask questions, and a lot of it was us teaching each other. So the professor was there kind of facilitating our discussion, but it was a lot of learning from each other, which I thought was really, really good. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Well, um, all right. So we only have about a minute left, but um, just tell me, what are your plans after you graduate? Hopefully after undergrad, I go to law school and then I hope to be a civil rights lawyer in the future. So those are my plans for now. I could change my mind, but as of right now, that's what I'm hoping to do. I think that sounds great. Well, and and with this internship, you'll continue to be exposed to different things, which, in my opinion, is really what, you know, what college is all about. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, is there any last thing that you'd want to leave us that that you think our listeners should know about University of Michigan? I know I'm putting you on the spot, Um, but I just wanted to give you the chance to say something. So just kind of going back to going on college tours, I think those are so important. It's really what convinced me to go to U of M. And I think for any school, really, you should go on a tour. Even if it's far away, take the time to take a trip out. I went to tour Georgetown and George Washington, and I it helped me figure out. I toured a couple other schools in the area, too, and I ruled them out, you know? Just like going on college tours, I think, is so important. Okay. All right, great. And I would, that would completely... Be my Okay, I think that's wonderful advice, and I'm always telling students and parents that as well. All right, so I think mm-hmm. we're gonna um, we're gonna move on to uh, our next segment. Thanks so much, Zainab. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. All right. So we're going to we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking to Karen Spencer, a college coach consultant, about what to do when you don't like any of the colleges that have admitted you.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break... For this segment, we'll be talking with Karen Spencer, a college coach educator, about what to do when you don't like any of the colleges that have admitted you. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me back. Great. So, um, yeah, and thank you so much for coming back. This is, this I think is one of the toughest positions that a student and that student's parents is going to find themselves in. I mean, I think. You know, there's a variety of probably, um, probably they made some mistakes to get them to this position. A lot of it was probably also bad luck. But let's just say, so what should they do now? You've got a student who just isn't excited. They got into some colleges, but they just aren't excited about any of their colleges. So, you know, what should their first thoughts be? So, I know, I think one of the first things is that to dwell on all the things you should have done differently. (laughs) I think it's easy to kind of armchair quarterback or, you know, kind of Monday morning quarterback the the process. And and I think some reflection eventually is good, and I think that's fine to learn from your mistakes. It's always a good thing. But I think one is not to rehash every single thing you could have done differently. Like you and, and, and Sally, you know, I'm kind of notorious for saying this, is like you have to deal with your reality, and kind of dwelling on all the things you did wrong or you should have done differently or maybe I should have used that different essay topic or maybe I should have worn that dress to the interview or, you know, whatever, it's kind of futile, right? And it's kind of taking your energy away from the topic at hand, right? Which is, okay, we've got to move forward and how do we do that 
in the best way. So we think my first tip is for people is not to spend, you know, endless hours kind of going back over everything you could have done differently. It, it is what it is, right? So let's work with what we've kind of got. I think that's just kind of the first thing that is that kind of a tendency for anybody to do, and I think it kind of can be somewhat unproductive. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the, the first things, too, I, I hear people say all the time, and having worked at Georgetown um, a lot, I heard this all the time, because, you know, Georgetown's a place that denies 80% of its applicant pool, so you have a lot of unhappy campers um, in April. And, you know, so many kids would call and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply as a transfer, I'm going to apply as a transfer, you know, you'll see me in, you know, uh, my application in the spring. And, you know, I think that's the one thing you absolutely don't want to do is just assume you'll transfer. I think it's really kind of unwise to go into your freshman year presuming you are going to transfer because it really automatically sets you up to be less engaged than you could be. I was saying earlier to a colleague, it's kind of like getting married and saying it's likely a starter marriage, right? I don't really like your odds <laughs> there. If, if that's kind of the attitude you're going into it, right? Right. Um, you know, and it's worked out, you know, all the people told me, and I would never hear from 99% of us, which is good. And that made me happy, actually, because it means they really learn to love where they were, or at least like, you know, where they found themselves, where their second choice was, or their third, or maybe their fourth or fifth choice. Um, was and so really most of the time, um, you know, once the sting wears off, uh, kids can really kind of get on board with where they where their options are. Mm-hmm. I actually, I absolutely think that's true. I I, uh, I have a, a close friend who um, didn't get into Brown. Actually, she was waitlisted, mm-hmm. um, but she had gotten into McAllister, and she just said, "You know what? I want to go to the school that wants me." And made exactly. her decision to focus, and it had been brown, brown, brown. Both her parents went to Brown, you know, and uh, and off she went to McAllister, and she has never regretted it for a second. She said that her first year was wonderful. She and she she did what you're advising. She really invested herself in the school, and it worked for her. And, and I think you know, I was just thinking that we have a colleague that. Um, you know, we have a named Ian, and, and Ian went to read, and I didn't know this until we were having this discussion, but Ian's, like, was, read was not his first choice, let's put it this way, um, and he had gotten, you know, not into a few, and he was, and you would never know it, he is the biggest reading person you've ever met in your entire life. I mean, you would think he has been his first choice all along, he loves that place, and, but you would never know that, because, you know, and, and to find out that, that was indeed not his first choice, um, going into it, and maybe not even a second. I won't go into, I won't tell his story for him, but I mean, I was kind of blown away. Like, this is a perfect example of someone embracing where they found themselves and, you know, turning into loving it for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's funny, we could almost do a whole episode on stories of, you know, people going to the school they didn't think they would like and really ending up just loving that place. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, we really could. And I do, you know, I tell students all the time, I firmly believe that 99% of students really end up where they're meant to be. Um, I, I do. Somehow the cosmic universe has a way of kind of working itself out that way. Or, and I think it also goes to the fact that I think a lot of kids think there's one perfect school for them. They think, you know, I have to go here, wherever that is. Um, and reality, that's just simply not true. You're like, I loved my undergraduate experience. I can't imagine having gone anywhere else, but I've been doing this job long enough to know that I, of course I could have gone somewhere else and been very happy at my second choice, my third choice, my fourth. You know, like, I just, I think it would have been a different experience, but it would not have been any less of an experience, right? Mm-hmm. And I think so many people realize that 
you know, when they can, when the wound, ha- you know, has, is, is a little bit more healed. And I think that's another kind of piece of advice, frankly, is to give it time. Um, you know, a, a fresh wound always hurts more than a healing one does. So, um, you know, give it some time. Let the sting wear off. Tends to give you a little perspective. Um, you know, when you've had a week or two and all the drama at high school has died down and, you know, this is not the first thing every single person is mentioning when they walk in the hallway, you know, I think then you'll have a little bit more perspective on kind of seeing your situation perhaps a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell students that first night, go ahead and eat a pint of ice cream or whatever you want to do to mourn. Let yourself mourn and then start to really invest yourself in the colleges that you have been admitted to. Like Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so on that note, um, what should students do to learn more about the colleges that did admit them and that, you know, to maybe so they can sort of get more excited about those colleges? I'm a very big believer, even if this was your first choice when you got into it, I think this advice is the same. But I always say to parents and students, go to the accepted student receptions of the schools where you've been admitted or at least the schools you've been admitted to that you're seriously considering. Um, you know, students tend to go, or I should say, universities tend to go kind of all out on accepted students day, right? They're trying to woo you. And, and I'm not saying that that means that's why you should go there, but you often at accepted student days can see things that perhaps were not on the agenda or on, you know, or visible when you took the basic tour. So sometimes the, they will have dorms open. A lot of schools do not show dorms during a regular tour, and maybe accepted student days they do. They will have, you know, the heads of the departments out to, to talk to if you've got a certain discipline you're really interested in, in studying. Um, you know, so there's just, there's more options out there. And, um, you know, I think you really can kind of see parts of the university that perhaps um, you didn't see before. And I also think a university or college looks different than somebody once they've been admitted. I really think, you know, when you're looking at a college as a perspective, a thing that might be a part of your life, I think it looks one way. I think, when you, um, you know this could be your home for the next four years, all of a sudden you kind of look at it differently. It's kind of like walking into a house. If you just are walking around on a Saturday and you walk into an open house, you're like, oh, look at this cool pile or whatever. If this is a house you're thinking about living in, you look at it a little bit differently. Like, oh, this might be my reality, and I'm going to pay attention to, I don't care that this house pretty does the plumbing work. So, you know, what, what are these things that matter to me? And so um, I do think accepted student days for uh, many reasons um, can be a good idea. I actually had a client who just went to California. Sally was on that email chain and visited three colleges she got into in California, and she had one was definitely the lead. She kind of thought, I really think I'm going to like this one, and then there was a second choice and a third choice, and the third choice is kind of further down the road. And I will say that after she came back, that first choice, she was like, um, absolutely not. I cannot go <laughs> here. And the third choice became a very close first choice now. And, you know, in her case, she hadn't seen these colleges to begin with because she lived in Florida, um, and so she hadn't made it out there the first time. But, again, it's a perfect example of why, wow, now that I'm seeing this live, I have a different perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I when students uh, visit colleges even the first time, I find that they're frequently making some pretty superficial judgments about how pretty the campus is. And when they go right. back at this stage, they're like, well, let me find out more about the College of Arts and Sciences and if the biology department, which is my interest, looks good. And, you know, let's, let me talk to someone co- from career services and do most of the students, are there lots of extracurricular options for me? And then, you know, you can find out 
I mean, I think that's what's going to give you the best sense of whether this is a really good college for you or not, and maybe a better college than the ones that turned you down, actually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean, what specifically can parents do to maybe help a child who's in this position? I cannot emphasize this enough, um, but keep in mind, kids, and I say as a parent, even before letters come out about whether, you know, whether it's good news or bad news, but I say, keep in mind, our kids learn how to deal with rejection from you, right? And and I think of this all the time because, you know, in, in Georgetown, I guess that April 1st was, you know, it was a weeping and gnashing your teeth kind of day, right? A lot of angry parents, a lot of frustrated parents, a lot of sad parents, students obviously too, but it was interesting that students didn't call in that often. It's the parents that called in a lot. And I remember it was like April 15th or 16th. Like it was already a good two weeks since decision letters had gone out. And a parent got on the phone and was like, I just can't believe you didn't accept my daughter. And he's kind of been going on and on. And, you know, and I felt for him, listen, I get it. I'm a parent. I get it. I do. Um, but I remember thinking, like, if you can't get over this, how in the world is your daughter going to get over this, right? This isn't even about you, right? This shouldn't be personal to you. I get it's your daughter, but this isn't your application. This is your daughter's application. And if you can't move on, how do you expect your daughter to move on when this thing that's not about you, it still has you all ruffled and you're calling me, you know, two weeks after the fact. So model the behavior you'd like to see. The thing is Mm -hmm. I tell parents all the time and students, listen, rejection is a fact of life. You're going to be rejected for something at some point, probably many times, right? I always say there is going to be a job you want that you don't get. There's going to be a boy or a girl you like who does not like you back. There is going to be a promotion you want, a board position, something you want that you're not going to get because you're not as well qualified or who knows what happened or it's not your day that day. Um, And you need to learn how to deal with that with grace and dignity and learn how to roll with that. And if you're not demonstrating that for your children, I think you're doing them a great disservice. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. Sometimes I've, I've used the analogy of the job to help parents understand where I'll say, I know you've been in a position where you had to hire someone and you had one position and you had 10 great candidates and you had to, you only had room for one of those 10 great candidates. That's the position the colleges are in. It doesn't mean that they don't like your daughter or your son. And sometimes it's like the light bulb will go off when I say that, but you would hope that they would have, you know, you kind of hope that after two weeks, parents have sort of figured some of that out on their own, you know, that they're not still, personally smarting from it, but as right. you said... Well, and I always, you know, tell parents and students, too, like, you know, and this is very, you know, whatever, but, you know, I say what you focus on expands, right? I really believe in that philosophy, and if, if all you can focus on is the rejection and you can't focus on this acceptance and this good news, that's the part that's going to expand for you, right? That's all you're going to get mired in that, and right. I need you to mourn it, like you said. I, I understand mourn it. That's fine. I get it. It's painful. It hurts. You know, get over that, and now let's move on. And demonstrate that for your children. Hands down, the best thing you can do for them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, um, so the good news is that I think if a student ends up going to the school and it still really isn't a good fit, which I think is rare, but occasionally it does happen, the things that they do that will make them a good transfer are the same things that they would do that would make them a good student, right? Exactly, so, exactly. So, 
Yeah. So let's let's kind of talk about that. Like if a student still says, all right, I'm fine with this school, but I think still think I'm probably going to want to transfer. And you and I think probably she or he will change their mind. But just, you know, what are the things that they need to do to prepare themselves to be the strongest transfer possible? So, you know, kind of a little bit like you said, you want to be the strongest applicant, period, right? And you think about what you want to do to make yourself a strong freshman applicant. That's the same kind of thing you want to do to make yourself a strong transfer applicant. So, you know, set yourself up for success wherever you go. You know, don't wallow. Like I said, don't show up there the day, you know, an opening and, and with a, an attitude like, ugh, I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. Again, not setting yourself up. You know, embrace where you are. Make the most of it because um, it's where you are. Um, you know, it, you know, in, engage in your classes. You know, befriend your teachers, right? Because these teachers are going to have to write you a letter of recommendation just like they did in high school. Uh, you know, get good grades. And again, I, I've always said I think where you're happiest is where you're going to thrive. So I think if you go in with a good attitude, your grades by nature are going to be better because you have you got a good attitude about it. Uh, you know, get active because, you know, just like your application for, you know, freshmen ask, you know, what did you do, you know, in high school, they're going to ask you the same thing about what you did in college. Um, you're going to have to write an essay as a transfer student. Um, I was a transfer coordinator at both Franklin and Marshall and Georgetown. And, you know, hands down, you know, the most common essay question for transfer is, why are you interested in transferring? And you have to be really thoughtful about this. And you can't write an essay about why you hate where you're at, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, avoid negativity like the plague is a rule of thumb, whether you're a freshman or a transfer applicant, right? We always say that. It's just, whether it's legit or not, it goes over like a lead balloon. So you know, let, don't trash where you are. It's trying to say, you know, this place that I am is, you know, it's a little too big. It's um, a little too conservative. It's, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't have a microbiology major, you know, whatever. That's fine. Uh, but really what we want to see as a transfer is why you're interested in where you're coming to as well. And I think that's the one thing, um, and this is not quite the question you asked, but I think it bears kind of seeing, especially when I worked at Georgetown, you know, sometimes we were wary of kids who had applied as freshmen and come back without a real solid reason for wanting to come here. Like sometimes it was like, our, they, they just want the prize, right? Do they want the thing that says, I got into Georgetown? You know, it's one thing to say, me real specifics about our foreign service program or about, you know, something we do that clearly is not present where you currently find yourself. But when mm-hmm. we found ourselves, you know, having an applicant from a school that either we thought of as a kind of a peer institution, and the reason for wanting to come here was a little vague, or from a school that wasn't a peer institution and your reason was vague, we kind of had the question, like, why, why, did, why do you have to be here, right? And again, it made, sometimes we give a pause and we thought, is this just to say they got it? And that's just, they can't kind of get over that part. Um, and so you want to be very thoughtful about why it is you're, um, um, you're applying to those schools. As I always say, you can't talk about why, you can't seem to be fleeing someplace, you have to be seeming to be actively searching for the place you're landing. Right. Well, and, and the other thing that I've noticed is, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of surprised at how many people think that saying, I've always wanted to go to this school was a good enough reason. It's like, no, the fact that you wanted to go here when you were five is actually makes me suspicious. Because it right. means that, how as a five-year-old did you know anything about what the University of Chicago was, you know, yeah. where I used to work? I mean, believe me, as a five-year-old, you couldn't grasp what it was. So, so this tells me that actually your reasoning isn't sound. So, right, right. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's going to be so important on a transfer essay because, frankly, what we want to do is make sure you don't make the same mistake twice. 
right? And that's kind of the thing with transfers is, okay, you didn't like where you found yourself, and that's fine, but why are we any better, right? And, and how, you know, and we want to make sure you've given that a lot of thought because we don't want right. to have you do this again. Right, right, exactly. All right, well, I think we've run out of time. Um, but Karen, thanks so much for this. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, and um, can't wait to hear your next guest. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. But when we get back, Beth Feinberg Keenan, a finance educator, will be answering questions from our listeners about how to pay for college. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Beth Feinberg-Keenan will be answering listener questions about financing a college education. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Sally. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Good, good. So we got some listener questions in, and what I'm going to do is I'll just read them out loud to you, and then you can give us your, uh, your, your measured and well-educated opinion. Does that sound good? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Sounds like a plan. All right, great. All right, so this first one is pretty long. 
It says, um, the listener writes in, I'm curious about the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. On one hand, I'm told everyone should complete it regardless of income. Yet I hear most middle-class working parents say the parents made too much money for their adult child to qualify for any financial aid, and then in parentheses, only loans. My question is, why go to the extensive time and trouble, not to mention forking over every last detail of your financial life to schools, only to learn you don't qualify for any assistance because you make over a certain amount. If you pretty much know that merit scholarships and other private scholarships are going to be the only assistance your child will get, and you can take out non-federal loans if you need to, why complete the FAFSA? So, I mean, to be honest, this is actually a question that I got actually a couple times today, actually when talking with families on the phone. And I think it's a question that we get from many families when talking about why the FAFSA. And to answer this listener's questions, I think really that last statement, you know, taking out loans. I mean, if you're going to take out loans, you might want to consider completing the FAFSA. The federal loans typically offer better interest rates, better terms than a lot of those non-federal loans. A perfect example was last week I was working with a young student, 28, and she was the first to go to college in her family, and her family didn't take out federal loans. And the three loans that she was repaying back had interest rates of over 10%. Well, if the family had taken out the time to complete the FAFSA, she would have gotten a limited amount of money. First-year college students, no more than $5,500. But today, that interest rate is 4.29%. So it's considerably less than that 10 11% loans that this young woman was paying back. Mm-hmm. So if you do have to tap into loans, whether it's, you know, just the $5,500, if it's additional money, beyond the $5,500, I think the first place really to start is by filling out that FAFSA to at least get you know, those lower interest rate student loans that your student's eligible to take out as part of the financial aid package. Mm-hmm. And other reasons that they may want to consider you know, completing the FAFSA is some schools require it for their own scholarships. They might be using some of the information from the FAFSA to offer scholarships. Maybe they're trying to verify citizenship status, something else that they can attain from the FAFSA. And lastly is if the family's had any type of change in circumstance or change in job, change in, uh, change in income, illness, you know, whatever that situation might be that warrant them to go back to the school and ask for more money. You know, the schools could have that already on file. And they're going to be able mm-hmm. to work with the family. The family might not have to wait another year before they can do something to help that family in that situation. So while it does take time, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, it does take time to fill out this application, I recommend all families, especially that freshman year, to fill it out. Worst thing that comes back is the only student only does get a loan. You have the resources to pay for college, and, you know, you're not going to take out that loan. Don't go through it again, you know, the sophomore through, you know, senior year. But... Because it is free, I mean, the free application for federal student aid, it's your time that you're investing in that. So mm-hmm. those are my thoughts of why, you know, families should take the time to fill it out. I'm, I'm also going to throw this in there. I've known more than once when of situations where family got need-based grants and they thought it was a merit scholarship but it was actually based at least partially on need. So sometimes what you're hearing from people is not fully accurate, not because they're trying to mislead you in any way, shape, or form, but because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding sometimes. I think you're right, Sally. And I think the other thing, too, is I think it's a general statement that, you know, middle-class families don't qualify for need-based financial aid and it might only be a loan. 
it could also be dependent on the cost of the college. I mean, maybe the friends that you're talking, you know, that the family was talking with, maybe they're going to less expensive schools, and that might be the that might be the case that families only qualified for loans. But some of the more expensive private schools, I mean, those middle class families might qualify for, you know, monies beyond the student loans. Uh, they could qualify for grants and/or scholarships that might have a need-based component and, again, requiring, as you said, them filing for financial aid to even be considered for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Thank you. That was really uh, clear and comprehensive explanation. Um, all right, so listener number two's question. Um, my daughter is in her first year of college with a learning disability and needs scholarships. We need advice on how to apply for them and get them fast. <laughs> I think scholarships are always a hot topic, you know, no matter what the situation is. And, you know, first of all, there are are two um, websites that I typically go to while there are a number of general websites. But the two websites that I typically fall back on are the College Board, which is a big future, uh, .org for outside scholarships, and the other one is scholarships.com. But depending on the the disability that uh, this individual's child has, there are also scholarships targeted uh, for students with disabilities like ADHD, dyslexia, autism, diabetes, you know. So there are scholarships that are specific to what the student um, is is facing. I would have uh, the family check with parent groups that they might be involved in. Reach out to national organizations that help students who have children with these disabilities. And also just do Internet searches. I've worked with a number of families who ask this question or ask other questions about scholarships. And the first place that I go is I go online. And I'll put in scholarships for students with ADHD, scholarships for students with diabetes, you know, with dyslexia, just to see what pops up. You know, some general scholarships that I've come across. I mean, there's um, this scholarship called the Allegra Ford Scholarship, the Ann Ford Scholarship. So there are a number of different scholarships out there for students with general learning disabilities or more specifically with students, you know, that if they are diagnosed with ADHD, as I mentioned. Many of the scholarships are going to want to have some type of medical documentation that the family is going to have to provide. Some of them might have a need-based component, so they're going to require the family to file for financial aid to qualify for this. But it's going to take time. I can't say it's necessarily going to be fast uh, to find these scholarships. It's going to take time and research on the family's part. If you indicated that you're, um, the student was a first year in college, have the student walk into the financial aid office, see if there's any resources that they have. Financial aid offices are often mailed um, or receive listings of outside scholarships. They might have information on scholarships for students with disabilities. If there's a disability resource center on the college campus, have your student go into the Disability Resource Center on the college campus and see if they have any opportunities or are aware of any opportunities that, that your child could apply for. So there's a number of different avenues that you still can research, and hopefully one of these will um, you know, be fruitful and be able to find additional scholarships to help you, help you and your family afford that college education. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, all right, so another listener's question. Um, Hi, my son is looking at premier liberal arts schools that are all need blind. In your experience, do you see these schools offering a better aid package in the early decision round or in the regular decision round? Do you think some of these schools front load their aid to the ED or early decision round? I was told by some schools that they do front load their aid. Any insight would be appreciated. 
Well, I think, Sally, I think this is actually, as we say, this is um, a question that's very interesting, and I think that there's a couple different concerns that are really, you know, focusing in on this question. So I'm going to really break this question down into, you know, a couple different answers and looking at, you know, focusing on different parts. So first of all, you know, schools offer financial aid out to students based on merit, um, or they can also base it on financial need. And again, some schools are going to offer, as you mentioned earlier, uh, monies to students based on a combination of merit and need. So those schools that offer need-based financial aid, you know, that's awarded based on the information that is supplied on the financial aid application. So again, going back to that first uh, question that we had. And the information that's being supplied on those applications is those applications is being used to calculate an expected family contribution for one year of colleges. And colleges are going to take this information and they're going to use it and they're going to subtract that expected calculated family contribution from their cost of attendance to determine the eligibility for financial, you know, for, for need-based financial aid. So this is really, you know, need-based financial aid is really based upon the family's ability to pay for college. Some of the more selective colleges, again, because I know he's talking about, you know, premier liberal arts institutions, I don't know necessarily the schools that he's uh, referring to, but you know some of the colleges like Amherst, Bates, and Williams, they meet full they meet full need. So aid is not going to be different if the student applied early through an ED process or regular decision. Um, these schools are schools that don't offer merit-based financial you know merit-based financial aid, but they do meet full need. So it really doesn't matter when the student's going to apply to the college. Now, the schools that offer merit-based financial aid, you know, these scholarships, um, these awards, are based upon the student's attributes uh, for things like academic performance, um, athletic performance, maybe the college major, other factors that the college is trying to recruit for. And these scholarships are often seen as an enticement to increase the likelihood that that student's going to attend that institution over one of the other schools that they've been accepted to. And one thing that I often tell families is, you know, for students who are, you know, applying ED, you know, I really don't think that schools are necessarily front-loading merit scholarships to these students for one reason. I mean, there's really no incentive for them to do so. Students who are applying ED, early decision, they are saying to that school that if you admit me, I'm committed to, I'm committed to you. I'm going to attend your institution. So there's no, there's no reason that the school has to incentivize that student to want to go to that school any, anymore. But maybe this family, you know, maybe they're talking about early action. So early action is another early application procedure um, or process, and it's it's not binding. The student still has choice, and they are able to get other decisions. They're able to wait till May 1st to make their decision. So, you know, in early action, you know, maybe they might offer some additional, you know, merit monies or front loan merit monies to entice that student knowing that they are going to have choice. Mm-hmm. One thing that I can recommend to this family as well as other families who are listening is colleges have a tool on their website, and it's called a net price calculator. And this is a tool that families can use to put in information about their income and assets, and they can get an idea, an estimate of what that school is going to cost them. What is that net price? Is the school going to be affordable for them and for their family you know, to attend? So, Using that tool, having conversations with the college, I think is going to be able to give the family the resources they need to make that decision. Should my child apply early, you know, and are they going to get the financial aid that they, that's needed in order for them to attend? Or should we push it off and apply maybe like through an early action or um, regular decision because we want to make sure that we have choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Um, I will say that there are, I think this is a pretty narrow category, um, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to fully explore it because because I have to go after this, but there are a few liberal arts colleges that are, are uh, need-blind, um, and they meet full need, but some students don't get money. So these are schools that don't gap, but... Mm-hmm. And they'll guarantee to meet the full need of a student during early decision round, but they don't guarantee it during regular decision. So I wonder if that might be what he's talking about. I think it could be. I think, you know, especially, you know, knowing sometimes knowing the institutions that um, the family is speaking about, you know, having um, more information to speak specifically and address, you know, that certain institution or those certain institutions that they're looking at. But typically some of the premier institutions, some of the very selective institutions that don't necessarily offer merit money, that do meet full need, you know, the financial aid packages that are offered to students, whether it's in the early process or regular decision, are the same. Okay. All right. So unfortunately, we have to go, Beth. Thank you so much um, for your time and energy today and for answering these questions. Um, You're and very thanks welcome. To th- I think. And uh, thanks to the rest of my guests. Now I want to tell all of you about our guests for next week. As I mentioned, our regular host, Beth Heaton, will be returning and talking with her guests about what to do if you don't get in anywhere or if you and your child can't agree on a college. For our college financing segment, the topic will be part four of regional tuition reciprocity agreements, and then it'll be focusing on the South. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. And if you last, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time and is absolutely free. And of course, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.